Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. So today we have the first episode of what I'm going to be tentatively calling 10 Good Minutes. These are short, explainer-type episodes where I unpack a specific topic or an idea, and I look into the research behind it and share with you what I've learned. Given how much of the podcast focuses on developing inner strengths and working through our challenges in life, and given also that Rick is a psychotherapist who spent 30 years or more in clinical practice, I thought that it made sense to start this series by focusing on therapy, and specifically trying to explore why therapy works. Because if you think about it, psychotherapy is kind of weird. Two people walk into a room, then they kind of do something together. In traditional talk therapy, you might be familiar with the sort of stereotypical image of Freud with a patient on the couch, but in reality, therapy takes a lot of different forms. So whatever the form of therapy we're talking about, whether it's psychodynamic or you're doing something like CBT or you're doing somatic experiencing or gestalt work or whatever, the two people work together for a while, they talk, they do whatever they do, And then somehow, through some process, one of them kind of ends up feeling better. So to answer the question of why therapy works, we need to start by kind of asking ourselves, wait, does therapy work? And the overwhelming majority of studies that have been performed on this question have found that psychotherapy tends to help patients. And some have found that psychotherapy is as effective or even more effective for the treatment of depression as medication is. The pleasant benefit of therapy is that it also tends to avoid problematic side effects that can be associated with medication while having a lower relapse rate after treatment. And if you're interested in where this information is coming from, it's based on a wide variety of studies, and I will be including as many of those studies as I can kind of reasonably fit into the description of today's uh, podcast in the description. So if you're interested in learning more about the research behind this stuff, check out the description of today's podcast, and I'll try to include those references and citations. So anyways, back to the topic. Interestingly, in the research, there's not particularly conclusive evidence that one form of therapy is better than another, perhaps with the possible exception of cognitive behavioral therapy, which tends to be really good at solving, hey, you guessed it, behavioral issues, like OCD, or perhaps also the treatment of anxiety disorders. For some context, OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, is categorized as an anxiety-based disorder. Those compulsions arise fundamentally out of a fear of something. Now, the flip side of all of this is that only a few studies that have demonstrated the effectiveness of therapy provide evidence for it that doesn't have a lot of bias, and there's a lot of publication bias in terms of what makes it into different research journals. It's a pretty well-known phenomena that the type of research that tends to get published in a journal probably slightly overclaims the average effect of whatever is being studied. So let's say that a study is testing the effectiveness of a certain medication for depression. Most of the time, if that study ends up getting published, it will have overestimated how effective that medication is at solving the underlying problem. Same thing the other way. If a study about therapy gets published as a treatment for depression, most of the time it will have slightly overclaimed or overestimated the effect of therapy on depression. This isn't because they're trying to falsify their research, it's due to a variety of complex factors that maybe we'll get into during another one of these episodes. Layered on top of all of this, there are even some studies that have found psychotherapy to be largely indistinguishable from placebo, particularly when you control for the size of the study 
and how long the therapy goes on for, and particularly whether or not they used real patients rather than people who had been solicited for the study. So all of that said, we can take it on reasonably good evidence, I would say, that therapy works in some way. And we can also be reasonably confident that people can actually grow and change over time, that we aren't fixed the way we are right now. One interesting thing that we're pretty confident about is that psychotherapy actually changes how clients use their brains in meaningful ways. So something is changing, something is causing their brains to approach problems differently than the way that they did before therapy. Okay, all that said, how does it work then? And how can we get better at helping people learn and grow over time? Pulling back the curtain, the dirty secret of the helping professions is that we are not entirely sure. There are a lot of good theories, but in a kind of weird twist, therapeutic outcome doesn't seem to be affected by how experienced the therapist is, or even whether they're a student or a professional. There's even some research that shows that young college students with no training or experience in psychotherapy can be more effective than trained professionals under very specific circumstances. Take this with a grain of salt because very specific circumstances, but still, this flies in the face of everything we think we know about how teaching and learning works, right? If therapy has some kind of clear mechanism by which it is working, there's something that the therapist is doing, broadly speaking, that's changing the client in some way, that means that therapy is a skill. You would think that somebody would get better at a skill over time. An experienced therapist should be more effective than a completely inexperienced one. So what could possibly be happening that isn't improved by years of training? And this question really kind of haunts the field of therapy broadly. And it also serves as a kind of useful proxy for some other questions, like how can we improve therapeutic outcomes over time? How can we help people change in lasting ways? How can we help them remove their problematic behaviors and install positive ones? To summarize, what really matters here? So in all of the research, there is one thing that has been consistently shown to affect therapeutic outcome, and it's called the therapeutic alliance. This refers to the bond built between a therapist and their client. It frames treatment as a collaborative relationship that both parties buy into, as opposed to something that the therapist is doing to the client. In a therapeutic relationship that focuses on building a strong alliance, both the therapist and the client are committed to shared goals, and they hold what's called mutual positive regard for one another. To put this simply in plain English, a strong therapeutic alliance is formed when therapist and client are on the same page, and they basically like each other. Now what's interesting is that more experienced therapists don't necessarily form stronger alliances with their clients, which is really fascinating if you think about it. This is such a key thing and it doesn't necessarily seem that more experienced people are inherently better at this. And regardless of experience, empathy appears to be a key factor in the formation of a strong alliance and therapeutic outcomes more generally. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you can probably guess that this is just causing me to ask more questions and be more uncertain about things rather than more certain about them. So why wouldn't experienced therapists be better at forming strong alliances or be better at empathic relating more generally? And maybe at the furthest extreme, is it possible that many of the elaborate systems of therapy that we've created over over 100 years provide little practical value beyond the act of sharing and being with an empathic listener that you feel is on your side. 
And that's where I would probably start to tap the brakes. I think that it's possible to interpret this data that way, but I'd be a little bit more cautious than that. Having both been to see multiple therapists myself and also, of course, talked to many empathic friends, I can say from personal experience that it certainly feels like something different is going on during therapy. And there are specific practices that I've found to be particularly helpful that you're just not really going to be exposed to outside of the therapy office. And the kind of therapeutic intuition that's used by a good clinician is not something that you're likely to be exposed to outside of that space. There's one book about therapy that I recommend to most people who ask. It's by Lori Gottlieb, and it's titled Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. To paraphrase a line from the book, one of the things that you get in the therapeutic space that you're unlikely to find other places is the willingness of somebody else to sit with you while you are in pain. Most of the time when we're interacting with just a friend, and we're having a conversation about some painful experience from the past, their urge, their understandable urge, is to move pretty quickly into problem solving, or trying to tell you why you're okay now, or giving you a list of all the other things that are amazing about your life. And those things may be true, but there can often be something that is uniquely healing about witnessing that somebody else is willing to sit with you in that pain, to endure that discomfort alongside you, and really understand at a deep level the pain that you yourself experienced. And maybe that, on some level, is what actually forms a strong therapeutic alliance and a strong empathic bond between the clinician and the client. Maybe when we perceive that somebody is willing to do that with us, we can actually fully open up to them and fully feel safe inside of that relationship. And a key part of this is that when those painful feelings arise for somebody— when suffering and intense emotions and sitting with somebody else in the pain arises in the therapeutic space, a key part of it is that the clinician is not overwhelmed. The clinician doesn't disassociate from their emotions. They certainly don't try to talk about how the experience wasn't actually that bad. They don't move too swiftly into problem solving. They let the emotions flow, and they regulate themselves, regulating their own emotions while feeling it fully. And this does two really important things. The first thing it does is it can give the client a kind of model, a sort of mirror, emotionally, for what their body can also do when it's in a heightened emotional state. It shows that regulation is possible. And in some cases, very importantly, what it also does is it shows that people are able to bear the client's painful emotions that those emotions are not overwhelming, that they won't make people immediately run away from you. And underneath that, it can help seed the belief that these emotions are not too much, or unfixable, or inevitable, or unsolvable, or whatever else. The clinician is able to regulate, they're able to be a good mirror for the client, and they're able to reinforce that experience of being seen again in your suffering and your pain. And this is such a key component of the therapeutic experience. And hey, maybe scaling it up is what that therapeutic alliance is all about. While it's not quite as good as what you're going to get from a trained clinician, something that kind of reframed my understanding of therapy is moving from a view of therapy as only being an hour-long session where you sit down across from somebody 
and you spill out your heart to a trained clinician for an hour, to being a much broader and looser kind of thing where you can have a therapeutic moment with a friend. So to leave you with a quick summary and maybe a little lesson here, it seems that most of the effectiveness of therapy comes down to the working relationship between the therapist and the client. On the one hand, this conclusion is a bit obvious, and on the other hand, it's incredibly important. It moves the focus from any of the techniques that the clinician is doing to the underlying foundation, that bedrock relationship between clinician and client. And if you're trying to take a lesson out of this, if you choose to enter therapy yourself, it really means that that's what you should be looking for. Sure, you can look for a specific modality, or maybe you heard about some form of therapy on this podcast and you go, ooh, I really want to try that out. Okay, sure. That's all well and good. But ultimately, what's going to help you the most is finding a relationship with a practitioner who you feel is strongly invested in your success and you also feel profoundly safe being in relationship with. And hey, if you're willing to offer that from time to time to a friend in need, that can be a therapeutic moment too. So I hope you enjoyed this short episode, the first of hopefully many 10 good minutes style episodes. If you liked it, leave a rating and a positive review and well, let me know. Or you can shoot me an email at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. Or you can always reach out through social media. We'll have another full-length episode for you on Monday. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll talk to you soon.